Thank you. You can be seated. And uh, while you're being seated, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Hold your spot there. As Adam mentioned, uh, we were there last Sunday as well for Easter weekend. And we started the parable, the story of the prodigal son. And we covered kind of the first half of it, the first part that deals specifically with the uh, perspective of the father and the younger son. And then today, as I mentioned last week, we're going to round it out looking uh, more at the older son or the older brother in the story that Jesus told as well. So Luke chapter 15 is where we are. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are out uh, on a sunset cruise. You're here locally and uh, you, you've paid your money to go out on a sunset cruise. Uh, it's not just an inshore. You're going to go offshore just a bit. You're going to go out in the open water to view the sunset where you can't see land at all. And uh, imagine that you're out there, you're just sort of taking in the sights and you're taking in the sounds, really enjoying it. And, and, and to, to the point to where you hear a sound you weren't expecting to hear, and it's the sound of a big splash. And you look over to the edge of the boat to the side there, and you realize that a man has gone overboard. You're not quite sure why. You're pretty sure that it wasn't intentional. And uh, he's gone overboard, and he's struggling to stay on the surface. He, he's periodically going under, coming back up again, calling for help, periodically going under, coming back up again to call for help. And, and you see this beginning to play out. And, and as you're processing all of this, you hear from another part of the boat, one of the travelers yell at the top of his lungs at the man, saying, if you'll only try a little harder, we'll throw you a life preserver. If you'll only try a little harder, we will throw you a life preserver. And then from another part of the boat, you hear another traveler look in the direction of the man. And when he comes back up out of the, you know, above the surface where he can actually hear, another person on the boat yells towards him uh, in, in pretty, uh, pretty serious language, <clears throat> yells to him that if you had been as careful as we are, you wouldn't be in that predicament. And as you're really processing all of that now, not the fact that he went overboard, but what you've also heard, you hear another splash. And you think to yourself immediately, oh no, not again. But this time you look and you see the captain of the boat and he's dressed in his captain's gear and he has now on purpose gone overboard himself. And before you can even realize what has happened, he swam over to the person in the water, he's uh, secured that person and he's brought him back and by himself has now put him on board the vessel again. And as you continue to process this whole experience that's happening lightning quick, you hear another voice, somewhat familiar from the boat, <laughs> that, uh, that makes the comment to everyone else in the boat, I can't believe the captain got wet for a person so foolish as him. And then you hear another voice, again from the boat, that says if we don't speed these things up, we're going to be late for dinner in the show. You know, it's interesting that when you think about life and the way we live, there in some ways are kind of two specific realms in which we navigate. There's the realm of our salvation, our faith, the church, and then there's the realm of the world. 
And there are certain people that are in this realm in our lives who are fellow believers, brothers and sisters. The Bible uses very strong language to describe what we have in relationship with one another, not just our relationship with Christ. That in itself would be enough. But God also kind of adds a little bit extra to that, and he gives us a common faith with other believers as well to the point to where we are family, brothers and sisters. And in the other realm, which we also do business to a large degree, are people who don't have a relationship with God. They've never placed their faith in Jesus. And some of them, God's on the radar. They're thinking through these things. Others of them, God's not on the radar. He's not even an afterthought. Uh, he's not anyone upon whom they focus. They don't open their day with prayer. They don't close their eyes just after they close their day with prayer. It's just not a part of who they are. They don't have a relationship with God specifically. And what happens is, often is that for us as believers and for us specifically as churches filled with believers is that at times we struggle to look from our world into that one. To the point to where sometimes what often happens is is that we begin to maximize ourselves and our standing before God to the point to where we also minimize this person uh, and and their standing before God. Uh, Even a step further, we feel like we kind of deserve the blessings we have and they not necessarily so much. Maybe for you, you've come off that ramp off of Truman Parkway, and you've come from the south side. You're heading back to the island or out towards Tybee. You come off of that ramp, and you begin to make your way to the right there, and you'll see a person standing there, or like many intersections around our city, and they're holding a sign. Have you ever read the sign that says, we'll work for food? And just immediately, without ever having conversation, without ever rolling down the window, obviously, without ever being able to sit face-to-face and eyeball-to-eyeball with that person, have you ever just assumed as you drove by that that sign is probably a lie? Well, they don't care about working. (laughs) And I'm sure they have plenty of food. Have you ever made that, well, let's just say that assumption, or have you ever let your mind go there? to some degree. Have you ever looked at a person who has fallen or failed in a way that really caught your attention and thought to yourself, you know what, they they probably deserve everything they're getting, whether that person has been arrested, whether that person has lost a job, whether that person has faced significant consequences. Have you ever found yourself just kind of assuming, well, they deserved whatever they get to the point to where when we look at ourselves, we, we, we sort of maximize our goodness, but we minimize theirs. We maximize our deservingness of what we have that's good, and we minimize their deservingness, so to speak, of anything good to come from God. That's a little bit of what Jesus is dealing with with this parable of the prodigal son. Last Sunday, we started looking at the younger brother, the younger son. Today, we're going to finish it out, and we're going to look at the portion that Jesus speaks to, the, the, uh, the relationship of the older brother, the older son. Now, let me just say, I think the overarching theme of the prodigal son we covered last Sunday in Easter. I'm not going to rehash that. I'll read it, but I'm not going to rehash those details. I think the overarching theme of the the parable of the prodigal son is that Jesus is talking about what it means to have a relationship with God and how God views those who are far from him. But there's an element that Jesus included in that parable, in that story, at the very end that we're going to focus on today, that he put there for a reason. And I think the reason that he included this ending to this parable is because of who was in the audience that day. And who was in the audience that day, to a large degree, 
are the same people that are in the audience today. It's kind of those two realms, those who are kind of in the religious world and then those who are in the, let's just say, the sinful world. And Jesus is speaking to both groups. So in Luke 15, Jesus is telling the story of a younger son and an older son and a father. And as he tells this parable, it really comes on the heels of two other parables that he included earlier in Luke 15. One is the parable of the lost sheep. The other is the parable of the lost coin. And then the one that is most well-known, perhaps more well-known than any other short story, is this third parable in the chapter, the parable of the lost son, or that we call the parable of the prodigal son. And as Jesus begins to go through this particular story, he, Luke tells us there was an audience in place that day. Look, look down in Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 2. So Luke says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So there were two groups that are in the hearing there. As Jesus shares these three parables, there are two groups that are there. And as we mentioned last Sunday, there are the sinners and tax collectors. Let's just say those are the ones overboard on the sunset cruise. They're the ones that are floundering. They don't really have God on the radar. And those who do have God on their radar think they could never deserve what he's offering. And, and then you've got another group, the Pharisees and the scribes. Those were the religious people. Those were the people, the Pharisees specifically, and the scribes that were part of the religious structure of Jewish life in the first century. They were religious, but understand, they were equally as far from God because they served a different structure rather than God. They would be largely responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, actually. They were just as far from God as the sinners and the tax collectors. They just had a religious veneer exterior to their life. They knew the lingo, they knew the dress, they knew where to hang out to look religious. Those are the two groups that Jesus is speaking to, and these are also the two groups that are represented in this particular parable. Remember, the younger son represents the sinners and the tax collectors overboard, in the world, immersed, going under. The Pharisees, uh, they're, they're, they're reflective of the younger son. The Pharisees and scribes, reflective of the older son we're about to get to, who were always on property, they had never wandered, and yet they were still equally far from God as well. That's who Jesus is, is going to address in this parable. And, and let me just say, the audience didn't end 2,000 years ago when he told it. The audience is still represented, even in this room, 2,000 years later today. And so Jesus begins to break down this parable. Let me, before we jump in, let's just take a look again at verse 2, and let's just see the context. We've seen the audience. Let's just see the context in verse 2. It says, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So, so verse 2 is, is like the people on the boat when the man goes overboard that are saying, you deserve what you get. If you try a little harder, maybe we'll reach out to you. you, uh, you know, you've asked for this yourself. How could you be so foolish? How could you not be more like us? And, and, and by the way, look at all the trouble that you've called us. We're going to miss dinner and a show because of you. That's kind of the Pharisees. And so Jesus, he launches into these three parables, these three stories, in response, I believe, 
to what the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling about, that he, he just the audacity for Jesus, this man who claims to be God, to actually receive sinners and to spend time with them, eating in their presence face to face. So, so what do we know about the Pharisees? Let's just say, the Pharisees were not just the religious leaders of their day in, in, in Jewish life in, in the land of Israel, but they were also, and Scripture bears this out, they, they had this attitude of being holier than thou, they were arrogant, they were self-righteous, uh, very much described by, the, reflected by the, the people in the boat and the sunset crews. Again, th- this is kind of who they were. They were hypocritical. And some of the harshest words that Jesus shares in the Gospels that are directed to a group of people are directed to them. In fact, I would, I would even say perhaps the harshest language Jesus uses are directed to the religious leaders of his day. The people who used your lingo and my lingo, the people who would have dressed like us, they would have been here before the doors opened, are the very people that Jesus would, would reserve his most harsh, direct language for. And so let's look at a little bit of that. Matthew chapter 23, Luke gives some commentary reflected through Jesus' words, Matthew 23. Look, look through the first seven verses here, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees, have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but, by them, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they brought in their phylacteries. Phylacteries were things that Certain Jewish leaders would wear on their forehead, on their, uh, on their arm, uh, that would contain scripture. Uh, what Jesus says here is they, they make those more noticeable. They broaden them, and they lengthen the tassels of the garments so that they can be more noticed. Verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. This is how Jesus describes them. Look down in verse 13. Now he speaks directly to them. He says, but woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus was very clear in his language, right? I told you, scathing denouncement of the heart of the Pharisees. Go down to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Look down a little further, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup, right? You've got the, the flactories and the tassels, and you look so holy and righteous on the outside. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, right? The heart and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. The Pharisees focused on their rules that they had added to the Old Testament. They were responsible largely for Jesus' crucifixion. And now Jesus, not only in Matthew 23, but also in this parable of the prodigal son, is going to deal with their hearts. And so we get to the second half of the story of the prodigal son. Let me begin by just reminding us of what he shares, starting in verse 11. We're going to start where we did last Sunday for Easter, and we're going to read down, and then we're going to move into the second half of this particular parable. So verse 11, Luke 15. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant or a far country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up, go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. It's the story of how the younger son, who had cleared the fence, went off to life on his own with no boundaries and no thought of God, would ultimately come back into the fold, into relationship with the father, reflective of coming into a relationship with God, and finding a father full of compassion. In the second half now, Jesus deals with the older son who would seem to represent the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious folks who were equally far from God. Let's jump in, verse 25. Now his older son, or the older brother, was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and down, dancing. So you get this picture that the older brother, the older son is out in the field. Maybe he's been out there since dark 30, right, before the sun came up. And as was his custom, he's out there working. Maybe he's plowing. Maybe he's gathering. Regardless, he's out in the field. And the sun is probably blazing, and he's been out there for quite a while, and he's probably just a little bit hungry. And as he's out there working in the field, he's working as he does day in and day out. He's working very hard. And over the hill, 
hills, the rolling hills, he, he hears this sound, and it's a sound of a song maybe he's heard before. It's the sound of a song that's only sang and played at a time of great rejoicing and celebration. Maybe it's a song called Desperado. I have no idea, but I am not going to sing it today, regardless of what Adam has said. And so he hears this song that's music, and, and he hears the, the sound of the, 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 the shouts and the cries and the dancing, and he can just envision in his mind that this big old party, and he puts two and two together and realizes, for some reason, they started without me. For some reason, I was either not invited, or this was of such significance that they couldn't wait for me. The party had to move forward, whether I was there or whether I was not. Look in verse 26. And he summoned one of the servants, and he began inquiring what these things could be. So as he hears the sound, he's still out on the field, and he calls one of the servants over, and he says, Hey, man, listen, do you know what's going on up there on the house on the hill? Because I'm hearing all this noise, I'm hearing all this music, and I'm hearing the celebration and it's very obvious there's a big time party going on do you know anything about this what on earth is going on up there verse 27 and he came and he said to him your father has come and your brother has killed or, or he says your brother has come I'm sorry and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound and there's a tone of excitement it kind of a can you believe this your brother has come and, and your dad has killed the fattened calf and now they're singing and they're dancing and there's a bill party and we don't even know when it's going to end isn't this awesome to the point to where, have you ever seen that little meme that you use in a text message and you send it to someone where they tell you something that is somewhat shocking and it's the guy who blinks his eyes a whole lot and he kind of looks away? It's that meme. And you can hear the older brother when he's told from the servant that your brother has come home. You can hear him almost say, I'm sorry, did you say my brother? He doesn't call him by name. His jaw hits the field. <laughs> Would have hit the floor, but he's out in the field. And he is completely shocked by what he's just been told. Do you mean the brother, he says, more than likely, you mean the brother who took half of dad's stuff, hit the road, we never saw him again for all these days except hearing little snippets of what was going on? You mean the brother who blew all that money and found himself penniless and getting everything he deserved? You mean the brother who stooped so low as to feed pigs as any honorable Jew would never do? Do you mean the brother who once he finally blew it all has now come running home to daddy to get what else he needs that's probably going to hit the road and leave again you mean that brother look in verse 28 but he became angry and he was not willing to go in and his father came out out of the house away from the party leaving the celebration leaving the found restored alive again son and he goes out to the field and he begins imploring begging him to come inside a fellow named Tim Keller pastor author saw a video of his called the gospel in life a few years ago he's also written a book since 
about this parable that's incredibly insightful. But I jotted some thoughts down from this video series a few years ago when I saw it. I just want to read what I've written down, a summary of, of Tim Keller's thoughts about this. He says, both sons, the older and the younger, wanted the father's things, but not the father. They used two different strategies, one to be very bad, the younger, and the other to be very good, the older. Both were alienated from the father. One lost away from home, the other lost at home. Both are seeking to be their own savior, one by self-indulgence, the younger, and the other by morality, the older. But the only way to salvation is to respond to the initiating love of the father. So we find this older brother, this older son, who is angry. He's angry because the one who went overboard has now been rescued and placed in safety in the boat again. He's angry because the one who lived such an undeserving life has now been granted blessing that he didn't deserve. And he's angry and he's alienated from the father in much the same and yet much differently than the other son was. Goes a little further, verse 29. But he answered. Now he's speaking to dad here, right? But he answered and he said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he can't call him by name, when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. Look at what it says in verse 29. Go back to it again. Look how many times he says, I. I've been serving you all these years. I've never neglected a command of yours. I wish I could be able to celebrate with my friends in the same way that he has. And being unable to even call his own brother by name, he's essentially saying he doesn't deserve this. He's in a sinner, or he's a sinner. He got himself in this mess. He, he, he should have stayed in the boat, and now he's caused all this problem for the rest of us. I'm going to miss dinner. I'm going to miss the show. He doesn't deserve a party. What on earth are you thinking? That's his attitude. Alienated from the Father, refusing to go in to celebrate because a sinner has come home. And the reason he's missing it is because he feels like he deserves better. Verse 31 and verse 32 and the father said to him, son, you have always been with me. All that's mine is yours. Remember, the Pharisees were Jews by heritage. Not necessarily Christians. They were not followers of Jesus, but they had the Jewish heritage. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead. He's begun to live. He was lost, and he has been found. See, there, there are two, kind of two layers to this, two sides of, of the same coin, in a sense, that, that I think applies to us. On one side, you've got those who are undeserving of rescue and salvation, and this is almost comical if it wasn't so sad, those who are undeserving of salvation and rescue who are denigrating others who they feel are less deserving of salvation as well. It's kind of like looking at those who've blown it in life by whatever definition you want to use and, and, and rather seeing them, than seeing them through the, 
the unconditional love of Christ, we tend to embrace a mentality that says, you know what, they deserve it. <laughs> because after all, they're not, like, they're not like me. And we would never say this, but sometimes we, we embrace the posture that says, oh, I know I'm saved by grace, but in a way, I kind of deserve what God's given me. That's one side of this coin. And it's the side that the Pharisees had chosen. And, and, and at the same time, it's a side that many believers still choose today. On the other side of that coin, let's look at it from another perspective. Where the older son kind of missed it was he was basing his acceptance from the father on how good he was rather than on the father's love. And when you listen to his argument, what did he say? He said, this is what I've done. I've never neglected a command. I've always done everything you've asked. I've always served you from sunup to sundown every day of my life. In other words, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, and you haven't given me what I deserve. And because of that, he was alienated ultimately from the Father. Now, there are some takeaways to this because when we begin to look at it, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees very clearly here. He's saying, you're the older brother, right? You've got sinners, you've got Gentiles, you've got people that are undeserving of salvation that are coming into the mix a woman at the well, a woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. You've got all these other people that are coming into the mix. And they're coming into a relationship with God, and they're being adopted into God's family, though they don't deserve it, and you're not able to celebrate, and you're not able to meet them where they are, because you're in the boat mocking them, denigrating them, and telling them how undeserving they are when you don't even deserve it yourself. And one of the ways the church, in general, has missed this in a lot of ways is because we have been more reflective. The church at large, we've been more reflective over those in the boat saying get better and you can get saved rather than going in the water after. Like our captain did. Like the Savior did. A couple of takeaways. Here's one. The church at large, including this one, and since we are the church down to a person, we have to be careful and we have to find a way to welcome those who are far from God. Right? However you describe that, people that have never placed their faith in Christ, they're far from God, their lifestyles reflect it. We have a find a, to find a way to, be, to welcome that segment of the culture, right? While at the same time, being sure that we lead them closer to and not further from a surrendered life to Jesus. There, there are two things in play there. The church today, we as Christians, have to find a way to be more welcoming of those whose lives don't look like, smell like, sound like, act like Jesus. We have to find a way to where we are welcoming even down to this particular property, this church, and those doors in the back, we had these seats right here. We have to find a way to ensure that we are welcoming of those who are far from God while at the same time not leading them down a road that ultimately leads them further from a surrendered life rather than closer to a surrendered life. The church at large is beginning to miss this. This is a huge issue in church life today, right? Because you've got churches and whole denominations 
that are dealing with this mess right now that are saying, all right, here's how we're going to address it. We don't want to miss people. We want to love people because God loves people. We want to swing the doors wide open, and we want to have a place for them. That is awesome. But the only way we're going to be able to do it effectively, these churches are saying, and the only way we're going to keep them so they don't leave later is if we downgrade the gospel and if we begin to water down the truth of God's word, which is incredibly dangerous and ungodly, (laughs) by the way. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got churches that are saying, by golly, we are never going to water down the gospel, and we're never going to tinker with the truth of God's word, and yet their doors are locked down so tight that you can't come in unless you look like, sound like, act like, think like one of them on the inside. Equally as dangerous. Years ago, I had, um, there was a lady that was visiting our church, and she had reached out, contacted me. She'd been coming for a while. This was a number of years ago. And she wanted, she wanted to meet to talk about membership, I think it was. And um, come to find out, we met. And she shared, she's probably in her 30s or so, I guess. We met here at the church, uh, me and one of the assistants and her. And, um, you know, in ministry, you don't get surprised by a lot of things after a while. This one I didn't really see coming. She, she shared with me how... She was in a same-sex relationship. She really enjoyed coming here and wanted to know if she would continue to be welcomed. That was her question. Great question. And I, and I was grateful that she didn't just assume what the response would be. And I was grateful that she didn't just send me a text, that she actually set up a time. And we had to have good, grown-up conversation about a very sensitive issue. And I shared with her, I said, in in the most gracious way that I could, I said, just so you know, I said, our church doors are open to anyone. Our doors are open for anyone of any choice to come and to be here. I have a strong conviction about that. I said, but in fairness, so that you know, whenever I preach on or teach on, which isn't all the time, but whenever I preach on or teach on a passage that deals with that topic specifically, my conviction is going to be that the biblical response is that embracing that lifestyle is an act of sin that requires repentance, just so that you know. And to my knowledge, I never saw her again. Now, she was gracious and she was kind, and I did my best to be gracious and kind. There's no reason not to be. But it was... To me, that comes to mind when I think about it, and I've, I've not always done a great job at this. I've missed it as well as others have. But it paints that picture to where we do no one any benefit whenever we water down or change the truth of God's word just to try to get them to show up, right? What we need to do is to be welcoming of anyone because, listen, we were in the water too at one point. Somebody had to go overboard to get us and drag us back into the boat. And you know what? A lot of people missed a lot of meals and a lot of shows because of what we brought to their lives. And yet it took the same amount of God's grace to save and rescue us as it does anybody else. So we don't look down on a certain, any certain segment. Whatever boxes you want to try to fill, categories that you want to try to fill with people, never should the body of Christ, never should an individual believer 
be anything less than welcoming of those people. But at the same time, we do them no service if we change, adjust, tweak, water down, or adjust the truth that's going to lead them further from God rather than closer to Him. All right, that's one thing. A church, every church has to navigate, every church has to manage. John chapter 8, when, when the Pharisees and the scribes brought the, the woman caught in adultery to Jesus, they brought her in there, caught in the very act. They said it themselves. You can only imagine. Now, th this was not a parable. This was a real historical event in this, in this instance. They brought her. They were probably either framing her, they set the whole thing up, or they were just waiting for it to happen. And they brought her, and they literally said, we caught her in the act of adultery. And you remember the story, John chapter 8. You can read it on your own. And, and they were all saying, the law says she should be stoned, Jesus. What do you say? And, and you remember, Jesus kind of started writing on the ground, and, he's, and he said, whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. And you remember, all he heard after that was the sound of big rocks hitting the floor, hitting the ground. Probably with the older ones and the more wiser ones first, realizing, okay, you got us on that one. And then probably the last ones were the younger ones thinking, I'm going to get my shot in if I, get a if I get a chance, right? And what did Jesus say to that woman caught in adultery, brought and dropped in, a, in just a, 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 a clump of humiliation at, and regret at his feet? What did he say to her? He said to you, woman, where are those who accuse you? And there were none, right? Where are those that condemn you? There were none. They had all left because they were not without sin themselves. And what does he say to her? He looks down, and I wonder if he didn't get down on his knees to look her eye to eye. He said to her, neither do I condemn you, right? You are welcome in my presence. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I meet you where you are, but I'm going to raise you up to a life of grace that only God could give. And it's going to be that grace that's going to lead you to live a life of obedience. Not to earn the love and acceptance of the Father, but because I've already given it to you through relationship with you. The church has to figure out how do we welcome those who were in the sinners and tax collectors category? How do we welcome that group with open arms, the love of Jesus, without watering down, changing the truth of the gospel, and being able to boldly call them to a life of repentance and faith the way we were called. we got to get that one right. And the second takeaway, and I'll begin to close with this, is that believers like us, we have to find our identity rooted in Christ and not our performance. The identity of the older brother, the older son, was rooted in how good he did. Not in who, the fact that he was the father's son. And the same for us. Listen, there are times when maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've had a hard week. Maybe you haven't read your Bible so much. Maybe you missed a couple weeks of church. Maybe you let a word slip. Maybe you got mad at the, the kids. Maybe you kicked the cat. Maybe, maybe you did something you regret. Whatever may have been the case, right? And you feel like, you know what? I'm just the lowliest Christian on the face of the earth. I don't even know if God loves me anymore the way he used to. We've got to get away from that. That's no excuse to kick the cat, yell at kids, or any of those other things, right? But our acceptance from the Father is not based on how well we perform. It's based on the fact that we have a relationship with him rooted in grace that comes when we turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus, period. So that if I miss my quiet time, if I do say something maybe that I shouldn't, if I do act uh, uh, wrongly against someone, or if I do whatever, break some rule or whatever that we find written in Scripture, listen, God doesn't love me less. And now it's his grace that calls me to a higher standard to do it better the next time, not to earn his favor, but because I already have it. That's what we see in the older son. 
So let, let's, just, let's just close. I'm like Paul. I've told you I'm closing about five times already this message. Let's just close with a quick little test and we're done. I'm just going to roll through these. You can just sort of sift these through your heart, through your mind, through your experience. Question number one, there's four of them. How quickly do you judge another who's different than you? Someone who's failed in a different way than you, someone whose skin color is different than you, someone who's raised differently than you, someone who believes differently than you. How quickly do you judge another who is different than you? Question number two, how easily do you celebrate others' victories? The older son, the older brother, had a very difficult time celebrating the victory of the younger. Even though he went from death to life, from lost to found, he could not celebrate that because he was focusing on what he didn't have. How easily do you celebrate others' victories, even when they're the one who gets the promotion over you? (laughs) How easily do we celebrate those? Question number three, how often do you secretly hope for another's failure? Because it validates your goodness, right? I've done that. And question number four, when you feel best about yourself, is it based on how well you've done or simply on who you are in Christ? That God loves you as much as he possibly can today. And it's never going to be less and it'll never be more because it's rooted in who you are in Christ and not the performance that you put into place, that you demonstrate. He loves you by his grace. None of us deserve it. We all deserve to go overboard and to sink to the bottom. But by his grace through Jesus, he offers rescue to meet us where we are, whether it's in the pit or going under, to meet us in our sin. He meets us there through Christ. He calls us to a new life. As we turn from our sin, place our faith in Jesus, he forgives us, wipes the slate clean, gives us a brand new start, and he calls us now to live a life that's honoring to him, not so that we can earn his favor or get extra blessing, right? but because he's shown such grace to us as a God who loves us. That's the life he calls you to. A life yielded, surrendered in obedience that meets people where they are and calls them into the life that only Jesus can give. Are we more like the younger son? No boundaries, but we've been found and our life is now different. Are we more like the older son? Right? who is just always looking down saying, I deserve more and you deserve less and we've missed the party? Or are we more like Jesus who goes in to reflect the love of the Father, to lead as many as we can to him? Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning. <clears throat> this is a hard message, God. That Thank you that we can see ourselves in this story many of us can see ourselves as the younger son saved by grace restored to relationship with the father and we're grateful that's why we sing songs in church on a sunday morning it's why we pray during the week it's why we read the bible it's why we share the gospel we do all that because we were lost and now we're found we were dead and now we're alive and we can see ourselves in him but lord sometimes truth be told we can see ourselves in the older son too and we're sitting outside and we're just angry and we're frustrated because of, of this group or, or, or that group or some segment of our culture. Lord, because of lifestyles embraced or, or, or platforms that are, that, that are promoted or whatever may be the case, God. And, we, and we, just, we miss your grace and we miss the celebration and we've lost the joy because we're just mad at everybody else. And Lord, somewhere along the way, we, we've got we to figure out how to rest 
how to rest in who we are in Jesus and to enjoy the grace you've lavished upon us so undeserving and yet you've saved us by the riches of your grace and, and you've, you, you've put us in, in a brand new place in life seated with Christ in the heavenly places Ephesians tells us God we are not who we used to be God how wrong it would be for us to just relish all of the blessings of being a, a believer and a follower of Christ and a child of yours and fail to reach back to those who are just missing it themselves like we used to and not meet them where they are like you did Jesus and lead them to a surrendered life because that's really the only life to be had and so Lord may we not be quick to lock down the doors of the local church may we not be quick to lock down the doors of our own lives to people who are in a different place that have embraced a different life but God may we be also equally May we be quick to tell them the truth in love with compassion so that they can know you the way we are able to know you. And so God, we thank you for being that loving father who never quits loving, always shows compassion, who meets us where we are and gives us what we don't deserve. All because you, Jesus, took what you didn't deserve, the cross that was meant for us. Help us to walk in a way that reflects you. And for any today that have never come to know you, Lord, in relationship, right where they sit, may they be quick this morning to lay down their sin, to admit it, to own it, and then to cast it upon you, Jesus, to ask your forgiveness and that you would wipe it away. Thank you for such an offer. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.